You're listening to TGC Q&A, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition, and this is the Biblical Counseling Series featuring hopeful answers to your questions on navigating fear, anxiety, ministry and marriage, and everything in between. My name is Jim Neuheiser. I'm the director of the Christian Counseling Program at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte and the director of the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. And today I'm going to be answering some important questions we received from you on remarriage and divorce. The first question is the massively broad question of what are the biblical grounds for divorce? And I actually wrote a book about that that came out a few years ago and spent 300 pages trying to answer that question. So in five minutes, I'll summarize and save you the price of the book. Uh, Basically, through history, the primary orthodox view is represented, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, is broadly there are two grounds for divorce. One is adultery or sexual unfaithfulness in marriage, and the second one is abandonment by an unbeliever. And Jesus, in the Gospels, three times references uh, adultery. And um, he says, for example, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so uh, the marriage covenant, according to the words of Jesus here and earlier in Matthew in chapter 5 and in Mark 10, all affirm that when your spouse has been sexually unfaithful, you may have grounds for divorce. Now, Jesus never tells you that divorce is necessary, and this actually gets into the whole issue of divorce. Uh, He also, prior to that, had quoted from Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh, what God has joined, let no man separate, is in counseling, even when there has been adultery, our desire is to bring about repentance on the part of the guilty party and forgiveness, if possible, on the part of the party who was relatively innocent. And actually, my wife and I do quite a bit of counseling together with couples where there has been marital unfaithfulness, sometimes the wife, sometimes the husband. And in the great majority of cases, uh, there is reconciliation. And we've even seen cases where the marriage is stronger. I mean, it's a hard way to get there, but there were issues in the marriage that led up to the unfaithfulness and not just starting with the unfaithfulness, but going back. Uh, We've seen people even come to faith in these situations where they'd been perhaps nominal Christians and realized they'd never really embraced the gospel, even understood the gospel personally until they went through this. And so, and yet Jesus teaches that marital unfaithfulness, again, it gives the right to pursue a divorce, but not uh, necessarily does not mean it has to happen. And uh, and the, I'll just admit from the standpoint, I spent uh, 30 years as a pastor before I came to RTS, is that when I was uh, younger, I never imagined how many cases I would see in the church of professing Christians where there has been unfaithfulness. Uh, I never imagined how many cases I would see where people pursued divorce. Uh, so, you know, the, the getting into details on this, actually, some things we address more in the book would be 
One would be, how do you counsel after a case of adultery? Another would be, uh, what constitutes adultery? We've had situations of homosexuality. We've had situations of uh, something falling short of intercourse. And so these are difficult questions. The word used is porneia, from which we get the word we use pornography, which is a broader term for sexual unfaithfulness. I don't think it's strictly limited to intercourse. Uh, one detailed question sometimes we get is, what if someone has looked at pornography? And they'd go to Matthew 5, if you've looked at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. <clears throat> and so again, complicated question. Um, basically, I would say that someone having struggled with lust or looking at pornography would not be grounds for divorce necessarily. Um, in the same way, you go back to a few more verses. Jesus says, if you're angry in your heart, you're a murderer. And yet, even though the nature of the sin is the same, you don't execute people for being angry. You don't put them in prison for being angry. Um, and actually, I've had cases where a wife said, well, I saw my husband looking at another woman. And I said, yes, you're right. He's an adulterer, but you screamed at him. You're a murderer. Uh, there needs to be some grace. I would also say, however, there have been cases where a person, usually the man, is completely given over to pornography, not fighting it, but just even going there instead of his wife without repentance, without change. And so I think it could reach the point of heinousness that it could be pornea. This is one reason why it's important to have your church involved when you're facing decisions like this and get godly counsel. Anyway, so in terms of grounds for divorce biblically, the first broad ground is sexual unfaithfulness. And then the second broad ground would be abandonment by an unbeliever. And in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul goes into some details where he says, I give you instruction, not, I, not the Lord, but I, where he's, he's not contradicting what Jesus said, but he's dealing with the situation or situations that Jesus didn't address specifically. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is saying in verse 12, the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now, actually, my personal Bible reading, working my way through the Old Testament, uh, the last week I've been in Ezra and Nehemiah, and in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have cases where the Israelites married foreign pagan women. And they were forced under the old covenant to divorce these pagan women uh, because they'd married outsiders, unbelievers. And a believer in the new covenant might think, and maybe it's a, a woman who came to faith after she had already been married and her husband's an idol worshiper. Does that mean I should divorce him like they did in the old covenant? And Paul is saying, no, under the new covenant, uh, don't leave. Don't uh, give up on this marriage that you're unbelieving husband is sanctified through you, your children. Um, I don't think it means the husband will be converted or necessarily saved. He says, you can't know whether you're going to save your spouse. But he says, don't divorce, try to live and honor God within that marriage. And uh, But he then gets to a question that he says in verse 15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And so 
he's giving another scenario. He says, you know, if the unbeliever will live with you, stay in the marriage. And this is an example of what might be a hard or disappointing marriage, which is part of a general principle as well, is that when we make vows for better, for worse, et cetera, that some people may have, it may be God's will for them to stay in a difficult marriage, like being married to an unbeliever. Uh, my mom, uh, my dad was not a believer. My mom was a believer. And I saw her until his death several years ago, you know, faithful to God, faithful to him. And she did the right thing. Uh, the world might say, hey, go find somebody easier to live with. Well, you know, Paul says you stick with it. But if the unbelieving one leaves, um, you know, where they, and I've dealt, we've dealt recently with a case where a wife was converted and the husband basically said, you're no fun anymore. We used to go to drinking parties. We used to watch certain movies and now you don't want to do that anymore. I didn't sign up for this. And there can be cases even because the believing spouse is no longer desirable and the unbelieving one is the one who leaves the marriage, who files for divorce, who leaves the home. Uh, in that case, Paul says the believer is free which also relates to the second question, and they're, they're so interrelated, I'm not going to deal with them that much separately. Can you remarry after divorce? And again, in the book, I go into some of the Greek, which is actually drawing on people like John Murray from the 60s when he wrote about this, that uh, free doesn't just mean free from that marriage, but divorce by its very nature means set free to marry someone else. And this goes back to Deuteronomy 24, when we had the example of you know, if a, a man would give his wife a certificate of divorce, and it was just assumed she'd go with that certificate, now she's free, and she was just assumed she'd marry somebody else. Uh, in the Bible, as in the culture, then divorce wasn't just you're free from that marriage, you're free to marry somebody else. And so uh, I would say both in the case of if you're the innocent party where your spouse has, you know, has divorced you because they've abandoned you, or you're the innocent party where your spouse has committed adultery and you've chosen to go the route of divorce, that you are free to remarry. Now, whether that's going to be the wise thing is the second question. A um, couple other things I need to bring up because there are complexities here that are pretty important. And that is that what does it mean for a spouse to leave? Uh, for example, I had a case where a woman who was working as a nurse and making a good living, was married to an unbeliever. He was actually chose to live in the garage instead of the bedroom. He took her earnings and would buy drugs and uh, he would, you know, smoke his pot or, you know, do his meth, sit in the garage, play his music, hang out with his friends and was totally disengaged from the marriage. Now, he did not want to leave because he was on the gravy train. You know, she's earning $100,000 a year in today's dollars, and he's doing nothing. And so I think abandonment can be more than merely filing for divorce or physically leaving the premises. In Exodus 21, it talks about a woman who was given in, in marriage that her basic rights included food, clothing, and conjugal rights. And she would be free to leave if those were not supplied. And so I think Abandonment can be a case, not merely of filing for divorce, but you can abandon the marriage by refusing to fulfill your responsibilities, um, not making any effort for provision. Now, uh, 
there are again controversies about this and you know marriages where i had a situation one time where a couple got married and they had sex on their honeymoon uh, she had a baby shortly thereafter and she says i only want one child we're done with sex and i think that could be a form of abandonment um but the again by the way you don't just rush off and get a lawyer that's where with all of these cases you try to get counsel you seek reconciliation you get work with your church but i want to deal with the most controversial aspects of this and that is in recent days uh, most of us i have concluded that abuse can be a form of abandonment uh recently wayne grudem wrote a paper that got a lot of publicity uh, saying that he thought it, that abuse was a third ground of divorce. And I agree that abuse can be grounds for divorce. And it's actually similar to me to adultery. It doesn't mean the first time anything abusive happens, you'll give up. You try to save the marriage. But I think a persistent pattern of oppression can be, rather than saying it's a third ground, which is really on tenuous exegetical grounds, in my opinion, uh, just the language here, that this can be a form of abandoning the marriage, that God has called us to peace, he says in the same verse. And so uh, the husband who makes it unsafe for his wife to live in peace with him, a husband who makes it unsafe for the children, in my view, that can be a form of abandonment. Uh, we believe passionately that a wife who is in danger physically has the right to get out. It's been pointed out by many people. Uh, Chris Moles has written about this. There's a wonderful book by Darby Strickland that's going to talk about this in terms of understanding abuse. The abuse is not merely blood and broken bones and bruises. There can be horrible oppression emotionally, economically, sexually that is not necessarily hospitalization. And so I think that again, I would take not an outburst of anger. One thing I liked about Darby's book was that she says there are things that happen in all marriages in terms of conflict or saying things you shouldn't say or pressuring each other in certain ways that are not a pattern of oppression that you would call abuse. But when there is a persistent pattern of oppression, I think, again, this is where you want your church involved and you want your church also to understand these things, have them read Darby's book and Chris Moll's book. I think that a persistent pattern of oppression can be a form of abandonment leading to grounds for divorce. A uh, couple of the things to tie up some loose ends. One of the most typical problems, though, is the person who is abusing is calling himself a believer. He's a member of the church. He could even be an officer in the church. And the verse says, if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, let him leave. But what if your spouse is a church member? And the answer would be that she obviously needs to safely confront him, which may be with other people present, about his sin. And now you're jumping into Matthew 18 in terms of the process, potentially, of church discipline. And a man who continues in a pattern of coercion and oppression and abuse who will not repent, the, the final stage of church discipline would be you put him out, which is you consider him an unbeliever, in which case this verse would apply. And now, at least in terms of the church, God alone knows the heart, but the church has disciplined him. Matthew 18 says, what you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. And so she would be authorized to divorce him on the grounds of abandonment through abuse. Um, so 
the related question about remarriage uh, would be that, as I've already said, the very nature of divorce allows for remarriage. Uh, there can be situations in which someone uh, is wants to remarry, and yet because they've not been legitimately divorced biblically, they may be legally divorced, uh, they may have a responsibility to seek reconciliation. So, um, you know, if you abandon your spouse without biblical grounds, actually Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians uh, 7 as well. In verse 10, he says, the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So if, if you leave without biblical grounds, option A is stay single. Option B is be reconciled. Uh, again, there are lots of complicated situations that can happen in terms of whether they're remarried or, but the general principle would be you have to be biblically eligible for remarriage. And yet remarriage can be an option. And I've known many cases in which people have been abandoned. Uh, they've been so badly hurt by someone they trusted. And God in years to come provided uh, someone else. In First Timothy 5, Paul talks about how young widows should remarry. And I would regard a woman who has been abandoned by a husband who was unfaithful, who went and married somebody else as being kind of a virtual widow. And to find a godly man who would care for her and possibly her children could be, it's allowed by scripture and it could be a blessing from God. Uh, I know that there are wonderful people, uh, some of whom have spoken perhaps for Gospel Coalition conferences who take what's called the permanence view, uh, saying that there should never be remarriage until the spouse is dead. Um, again, I try to present that view in my book in a kind and sympathetic way while showing why I think the view of the confessions, the view that I take is more biblical. I would give a couple words of caution, though, in terms of someone who has been hurt in marriage through abuse, through adultery, through abandonment. Um, I think it's so important for them to, first of all, restore their soul to God. I think when you've been hurt, I mean, even if you go back to high school, if one girl dumps you, you want to find another girl so you won't feel dumped and lonely or something. And uh, I think sometimes the rebound effect can be dangerous where you feel so hurt and broken that you're vulnerable to making a bad decision. I've seen some people who, you know, a woman who divorces a bad man, for example, an abuser, then she marries another man just like that guy. Um, and, and so I think that there's a lot of wisdom when someone has gone through a divorce to just make up their minds that you need to spend some time recovering spiritually to grow in the Lord and even to learn, you know, what, what can I do to make sure this never happens again? <laughs> that, um, you know, what needs to happen to me? What made me susceptible perhaps to a person of bad character or what did I not see that I should have seen? I like Deepak Reju's book uh, called, uh, she's got the wrong guy that kind of goes through, the kinds of bad men that good women sometimes are tempted to marry. And um, in the introductory chapters of my book, I talk about, are you ready for marriage? Are you eligible for marriage? What do you need to be before you're married? What does this other person need to be? And so I think someone considering remarriage should go about it very slowly and cautiously, uh, get people who will ask the hard questions 
of uh, your potential spouse. I've actually been in a position before where I kind of liked it like the dad in the old movies where there wasn't a dad to do the job. And, you know, asking a young man about his, you know, are you struggling with porn? What are the relationships have you been in? Uh, you know, trying to discover, does this person have an issue with anger? And uh, so I think just, yes, you know, you asked the question, well, how do you examine a family history of divorce and avoid the patterns that led to it? Um, you need to be around people with great marriages and learn what's happening there. If you don't have a family that has that example for you to follow in your own immediate family, you know, in the church, even couples discipling couples or singles, seeing couples who are transparent and have healthy marriages. And then probably ultimately, like Jeremiah 17 describes, if you, if you put your ultimate trust in men, it's going to go badly. It'll be like the bush in the desert, Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6. And we need to put our ultimate trust in God so we don't need some other person ultimately to fulfill us. And then under God, a marriage can be an amazing blessing. I've been married for over 40 years to Caroline, whom I've known since high school. Uh, she was interested in me then. We tried again in college, and that worked a lot better. And it's been the greatest earthly joy I've had, and it's drawn me closer to Christ. And I'm, I'm thankful for that blessing, and that's one reason I'm thankful to get to talk about marriage. And I would love to see the truths of Scripture centered in the gospel enable other people to experience the blessing that God has for us in marriage. Even though we've talked about the hard things, there are great and wonderful blessings that God has where marriage helps us to understand the gospel. The gospel helps us to understand marriage. As there's grace in marriage, uh, we grow. 